Well, good morning, everybody. So this week, we're just going to look at the first 17 verses again, which is where Christ washes the disciples' feet, but not to go in depth, but just to get some practical application from it. And no, we won't be washing each other's feet this morning. You're probably quite thankful for that. So we'll pray, then we'll, we'll jump into it. Father, thank you for this beautiful picture of humility and love and sharing and compassion that you have given us by this foot washing that you did for the disciples, Lord. And Lord, it's not about washing feet so much, but about having a humble heart and being willing to serve other people. Help us to uh, understand this and apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's just read the verses again. So I'll read uh, 1 to 17. And then we'll talk about some application from there, and then we'll go into the rest of the chapter. So now before the feast of the Passover, this is John chapter 13, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And suffer being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So, as I said, this is just a a general application of this passage, building what we did last week. So, in every generation, and in every person's heart, there's a craving for love. Yeah. Everybody wants to be loved. That's our deepest need. All right. So Jesus addresses our need to be loved in this part of the Bible here in John 13. And he's going to continue this theme right through to the end of chapter 16. And he's talking about the key component of Christianity is love. And... He calls his disciples together hours before the cross and he's speaking about what's most important. And he doesn't command them to be more zealous, more dedicated, more committed, more knowledgeable. No, he just says, I want you to be more loving. And he emphatically stresses that they should love one another. And why? Well, he did say that all men would know that you are my disciples, John thirteen thirty five. And so Jesus is going to teach on love, so he's going to give an example of love. So to base his teaching on, based on a practical example of love. So the freedom to love. Jesus was free to love. So he is at this table, and as we said last week, they were arguing about who was the greatest. He was about to be betrayed. He knows they're going to walk away from him. He knows that Peter's going to deny him. But he's still free to love. Now, sometimes we can be 
in a situation and, and we've been hurt and we're not free to love. Do you know why? Because we've got unforgiveness. Okay? Or we might be stuck in a sin and Satan is accusing us. And because we haven't repented yet, uh, we're, we're basically rendered useless because we're not free to love in the present because we're still stuck in sin. So basically, if we haven't dealt with what's happened in the past, it could be the very recent past, it could be 10 minutes ago, and repented, and we understand that our forgiveness is complete, that there is no more condemnation, then we will be unable to love in the present we need to remember that as a believer, the blood of Jesus has washed away all of our failures and our sin. Every sin you've ever committed is not only forgiven, but also forgotten. Fantastic. The kids know this. That's awesome. All right. And where do you find that? You find that in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. So I'm absolutely at peace with my past, not because of my perfection, not by a long shot, because I'm not perfect, right? But because of my position in Christ and what he's done for me at Calvary, I have been justified, which means just if I'd never sinned. I'm in a right relationship with God. There's nothing between us. And this is the freedom from the penalty of sin. And there's also the freedom from the power of sin. And as we repent of our sin and choose to follow the Lord, we are now controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's right. But there is a condition. There's one condition that we need to meet before we can be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And you find it in John 15. We must abide in the vine and then we will bear fruit. So, we need to have faith in our relationship with God that he has freed us both from the penalty, that's condemnation, the penalty of sin, and the power of sin, which is sin's dominion over us. It's gone. We can be free. Now, not only did Jesus know he came from God, but he was also going to God. And this is based on verse 3 in chapter 13. So if you're always concerned about how the stock market's going or if you're going to have enough money coming in or about your health or if you're going to get married or if the relationship's going to survive or if you're going to make it into the football team, whatever it might be, you're thinking in the future, you won't be able to love in the present because you're so concerned about future events that you don't have any emotional capital left for the, the present. You're distracted. So we need to remember that our past is taken care by Jesus' blood shed for us at Calvary on the cross, and my future is in heaven with the Lord. And if I have those two things in balance and understood, then I'm free to love in the present. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So faith, what God has done for us in the past, hope, what he will do for us in the future, and love, is the present now. So Jesus was free to love, no matter how much uh, the people were offending him and um, letting him down. And it's tough. It's really tough, especially in a marriage in that you know it's hard when the other person let you down to keep on loving them, but that's what this is all about. Uh, John Corson, a quote from him, It takes faith for the past and hope for the future to allow men to love in the present. Faith makes all things possible. Hope makes all things inevitable. But love makes all things enjoyable. Knowing where he came from and knowing where he was going meant that Jesus was free to love. Now, the next uh, application from these verses, 1 to 17 in John 13, is Jesus is demonstrating the cost of love. So they're sitting at the dinner and he was interrupted. His meal was interrupted. He's you know, in the middle of this dinner and he stops eating his dinner and he gets down and basically partially undresses and puts a towel around his waist and he gets the bowl, fills it with water and brings it back, washes her feet. It wasn't a quick thing. You know, it takes a bit of time to do all that. He didn't get any slave to do, get, oh, would you go over there and fill that bowl up with water for me? He did it all himself. So 
the principle here is for us that God will bring people who need our help at a time when it's not convenient. <laughs> there will be interruptions, and we need to be willing to say we need to be willing to be interrupted. That's one aspect. Like you might be sitting in front of the TV with a bowl of ice cream watching the footy if you like watching the footy. Or for me personally, if I'm in the middle of sermon preparation, I just want to concentrate. You know, there'll be a knock on the door or someone's rung me on the phone. It's like, okay, I just need to put this aside. There's been a hard lesson to learn sometimes and to be available to people when they need you. That's really, really important. And He wants us to be involved in people's lives. Jesus didn't stop his meal and said, I can't eat any longer. There's too much of a bad smell in here. You guys need to do your feet. These are the reasons why I'm going to give a five-point sermon on why you need to have clean feet. No, he just stood up and he dealt with the issue. And so that's what God wants us to do. Not make a big thing about it. Not give a lecture. Just get in there, pray for people, help people, work with people, talk with people and help them to come back to a right relationship with God. And someone said, if you're not willing to wash feet, then keep your mouth closed when you see dirt. When I see dirt, I can either talk about the dirt, which then is called judging, or I can involve myself in that person's life by tending the situation on my knees in humility through intercession and through action as appropriate. So Jesus chose to apply himself, not just talk about it. He did something about it. The next main principle we get from this is that love is humble. So Jesus didn't stand up and say, Disciples, you will now see love in action. Watch me, take notes, a few photos will be allowed. It's not like that. He just quietly got up and he started washing feet. It's not something he announced. It was not something all of Jerusalem could see. He just quietly took care of the situation. And we might say, well, you know, I'd love to do that, but I don't really have people like that to wash feet of, or wash their feet. Well, think about who these people were. There was Simon the Zealot, who was a, you know, really into politics. There was another one, uh, who James the Less, who not a single word is ever recorded, so I assume he's quite shy. Nathaniel was sceptical. Uh, Peter was one who would deny you. And Judas was one who would stab you in the back. So you go through the group and there's represents just about any kind of person you can think of. These are the people that God wants us to wash their feet in practical ways, as well as pray for. And it, I like it because Jesus loved these guys. And, you know, at times I'm not very lovable, but Jesus still loves me. And it's all because he is love. Now, the next main principle here, or application, is that when Jesus washes their feet, he reveals that there are some difficulties with loving other people. So Jesus wants to wash Peter's feet, but he says, no, you're not going to wash any part of me. And then when Jesus corrected him, he said, oh, wash all of me then. But that's not right either. Okay. So you see there's two problems. There's a problem of independence, where people don't want your help. And then there's a problem of over-dependence when people want too much help. So some people say to us, basically, if you don't help me every day in every way, you're not a good Christian. And they expect a lot from us and lay a lot of demands on us. They manipulate us. They seek to exploit us to get what they need. That's not right either. So we need to say, you know what? I'm not the Lord of your life. I'm not, I can't be the solution to your problem. I can point you to the solution. I'll do what I believe the Lord is showing me in my heart. I'll do according to his leading, but that's it. You'll have to figure out the rest yourself. Because some people will be so demanding, we need to remember that the Lord's burden is easy and his load is light. And you find that in Matthew 11 verse 30, For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. So if someone wants to overload or overburden you, we need to learn to say no. So how do we put this into practice practically? Well, we don't have sandals and muddy roads these days. But think about how you can put this into practice practically. A couple of examples. You're washing your car on the front lawn. 
well, the neighbor's car is over there too, and that's pretty dirty. They've been forward driving or something, and get the hose and wash their car too. You know, that's a simple act of service that you can do to bless someone. You might wash your neighbor's windows while they're on holidays. It might mean changing nappies in the creche or washing dishes without being asked. And you might say, well, that sounds great, but I'm going through such a hard time right now that I'm not in a position to do anything, to wash anything, to help anybody. Well, here's a principle you can think about. We all live by basin theology, okay? You remember Pontius Pilate? He took a basin of water and he washed his hands of all his responsibilities, his legitimate responsibilities. He, he washed his hand of it. So we can do that. We can say, oh, I don't feel like doing that. I'm going to wash my hands of my responsibility to do what God wants me to do and to help people. Or we can grab the basin and use that water and that towel to serve somebody. So we can wash our hands of what God wants us to do or we can get in there and serve humbly. Now, what does Jesus' teaching or washing of the disciples' feet teach us theologically? Well, positionally, we are the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because Jesus said, you are all clean except one. Okay, You are all clean except one. The one was Judas who was not saved. Okay, The one who didn't have faith in Christ. So as we walk through the world, there is a need for the cleansing of of fellowship that takes place in the confession of sin. So we're born again, we're believers, we're going to heaven, but we still have failings, we still have shortcomings, and we need to be washed continually. We need to repent continually. We talked about this last week, but just quickly. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need to live in the place of continual confession in order to appropriate the finished work of Calvary and to stop Satan from having a foothold in our lives. Remember, if you don't repent, you're not really being sorry, and you'll just keep on doing that same thing, and your heart will grow hard. Now, what about those who are backslidden? How can we apply this to those who are backslidden? The story goes like this. I was baptized six years ago, but since then I've gone through a period of backsliding. Should I be baptized again? Now I've come back to God? I would say no, but there is something you can do. You can choose to go and serve somebody. If you want to demonstrate that you're right with the Lord again, and that you've given all that addiction up or whatever it might have been, then go and serve somebody. Just go and do something for somebody. Pray for somebody. Talk to somebody. and Do what God wants you to do. So it's not enough just to hear a Bible study and agree with it intellectually. We're not just a community where we agree and affirm our beliefs. It must be a place where we encounter God. And that is by practical ministry, when we help each other, when we serve each other. Because when we serve others, we are serving who? Christ. All right. So I'm going to read Matthew 25, 33 to 40. And this is where this is made really clear that when we serve each other, we're serving Christ. So it says, He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. So some of the practical ways that God gives us is giving people food and drink, hospitality, friendship to strangers, gifts of clothing, caring for the sick, and visiting people in prison. These are the basic things that we can do in the kingdom of God. 
And we should be doing it, not expecting anything in return. And I've got a couple of quotes from Spurgeon just before I move on to the next part of the chapter. So in relation to wash one another's feet, so we, like the disciples, would gladly wash the feet of Jesus, but Jesus tells us to wash one another's feet. So anything we do for each other that washes away the grime of the world and the dust of defeat and discouragement is foot washing. So here's Spurgeon's quote. In the world they criticize. This is the business of the public press, and it is very much the business of private circles. Hear how gossips say, Do you see that spot? What a terrible walk that man must have had this morning. Look at his feet. He has been much in the mire, you can see, for there are traces upon him. That is the world's way. Christ's way is very different. He says nothing, but takes the basin and begins to wash away the stain. Do not judge and condemn, but seek the restoration and the improvement of the erring. So that's what Jesus was doing, is getting there and, and uh, working with them to bring them back into a right relationship. The second one is based on, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. So the theory of being a servant isn't worth very much, but the practice of being a servant pleases God and fulfills our calling. So Spurgeon's quote is, If there is a position in the church where the worker will have to toil hard and get no thanks for it, take it and be pleased with it. <laughs> If you can perform a service which few will ever seek to do themselves or appreciate when performed by others, yet occupy it with holy delight, covet humble work, and when you get it, be content to continue in it. There is no great rush after the lowest places. You will rob no one by seeking them. I just read those because it just gives you the overall message that Christ is trying to tell us that to be humble, do the things that other people don't want to do or aren't willing to do. Let's move on to verse 18 or read verses 18 through to 30 and then we'll just go through this uh, section. So it says in John chapter 13 verses 18 to 30, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever receives, whomever I send, receives me, and he who receives me, receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he had said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things that we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. So that's the condition of Judas's heart, as well as the time of day. So, verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So, lifted his heel against me means... He has given me a great fall or he's taken cruel advantage of me. You've been let down. You've been betrayed. And it means in the Eastern tradition or culture, it means a great betrayal or treachery. And it goes back to Psalm 41 verse 9. 
And there was a guy there called David. You're aware of him, King David. And he had his best friend or advisor, who would have been very, very close to him, Athithopel, I think is how you say his name. Now, David's son Absalom launched a rebellion against David, and Athithophel turned up from David, abandoned David, and joined forces with Absalom. And David says, He who ate bread with me, the guy who sat at my table, the guy who shared with me, has kicked me in the teeth. That's a paraphrase. So what happened to David was a picture of what would happen to the son of David, Jesus, as he was betrayed by Judas. It's interesting, because after Epithophel betrayed David, what did Epithophel do? He hung himself. And you've read that in 2 Samuel 17, 23. He was guilty of betrayal. Now, there's another who is guilty of betrayal. Peter denied Jesus. But he is different. He didn't end up hanging from the limb of a tree because he looked to the one who hung on the tree of Calvary in his place. You see, we've all let Jesus down. We've all betrayed him in a way. And we have sinned. We can either get hung up about it. That's not a very nice pun, is it? Or we can look to the person who was was hung in our place and ask for forgiveness. All right, verse 20. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So the gospel needs to get out there. Jesus is saying to them that they will be, he will be sending them out to others so they can hear about him. Verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now it's interesting that they all look around at each other and in Matthew twenty six twenty two, I think it says, um, they, they asked, is it I, is it I, is it I? And they're all doubting themselves before they would suspect Judas. Now it's interesting, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Why was he troubled? Who was he troubled about? Well, there's a few options. He could be troubled about his imminent um, departure, his the soon the upcoming death on the cross, or he could be troubled that Judas was headed for eternal damnation. So Jesus is definitely you know when he gets to the garden he he prays you know sweats drops of blood so he's definitely you know he's he's going through some tough times here, but when it says this it's in connection to Judas and it could be that he's actually troubled in spirit because of Judas. He loves Judas. He's put Judas in the place of honor at the table. He calls him friend when he's betrayed. He's giving him every opportunity to repent. And so Jesus does not want anyone to go to hell. And he's troubled and people do. He loves them. And we'll come back to that later. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples. And remember, I showed a, a picture um, last week or the week before about the U-shaped table, and they would lay down, lean on one arm and eat with the other, the feet sticking out the back. Well, the one leaning on Jesus' bosom is described as whom Jesus loved. So John describes himself as the one whom Jesus loves. Now, this is important because I'll share a quote first. The more I know Jesus, the more I love him. But the more I know me, the more amazed I am that Jesus loves me. So, the more I know Jesus, the more I love him. But the more I know me, the more amazed I am that Jesus loves me. I believe it's in this spirit of amazement that John refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. And I've got a quote from Chuck Smith, the disciple Jesus loved. John described himself several times as the disciple Jesus loved. It's interesting that none of the other Gospels describe John that way or call him John the Beloved. But John, who wrote this book, had a strong sense that he was loved by Jesus. And it's great to know that Jesus loves you. 
And this is a feeling that we should all have. He loves me as we lean on him. So the fact that God loves us is the foundation of our faith. It's a motive for all he has done and is doing for us. And it should become our motive for serving him. So John the Apostle, as you know, he became the Apostle of Love. And later on in his life, you know, when when he was really old, being carried around and stuff, he'd just say, God loves you. That was his main message. So for us, the application, Jude, the main point of that is that we keep ourselves in the love of God. And verse 24, Simon Peter therefore mentioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? So John the Apostle is the one here. He's being anonymous, but it's him. So John the Apostle, or the disciple here, asked Jesus, who is it that's going to betray you? I love this picture because he's leaning against Jesus' breast. They're leaning into each other. Now here's the creator of the world lying down at a table and he's got his best mate leaning against him. Isn't that sweet? They just It's almost, um, it's just really intimate. It's, it's beautiful. And God wants us to have that same kind of Fellowship with him. Jeremiah 33 3 says, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. So if we want to hear from the Lord, we need to abide with the Lord. We need to be with him. We need to lean on him. Like John was doing practically, but we can do that by spending time with him individually. Now, what does it take to hear from the Lord, to enjoy this level of intimacy that John the disciple was. Well, Psalm 24, 3-6 says, Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God their Saviour. Such people may seek you and worship in your presence, O God of Jacob. So it all comes back to the regular feet washing, the regular repentance, keeping ourselves pure, keeping a short accounts with God so we're not separated from him and we will continue to enjoy that intimacy. And verse 26, Jesus answered, It is to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I've dipped it. So Judas, as I said before, is in the place of honour and this is like a toast. It's a privilege. You're giving honour to someone when you dip it in and give it to that person. In that tradition, in the Eastern tradition, that's that's what it meant. So Judas is being loved by Jesus to the very end. He, Jesus is giving Judas every opportunity to repent. He's loving him to the very end. And if we go to Second Peter three nine, it says, "The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, as some people think. No, He is being patient for your sake." He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. And I started wondering if Peter, when he wrote that, was thinking about Jesus' love for Judas when he wrote this verse. Jesus was loving Judas so much, he just didn't want him to be destroyed. He knew he would be, but he didn't want him to be. And he continued loving him to the very end. And having, verse 26b, And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. So Jesus gives the piece of bread to Judas and the disciples still don't understand that he's going to betray him. Maybe it was just spoken quietly to John. But maybe, and more importantly for me, is giving this special toast to Judas, giving him the special honor of dipping the bread and passing it to him, how could he be the betrayer if he's being honoured? How can he be the betrayer if he's the one who Jesus is showing the most love to? So, we don't know why they don't know, but there's a couple of thoughts for you there. Now, the disciples not recognising Judas as a betrayer is interesting and unexpected. 
but it makes sense biblically. And I'm just going to read to you Second uh, Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. Think about this. If Satan can appear as an angel of light, then so can his messengers, right? So Second Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. These people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I am not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. So Judas is possessed by Satan himself, and he came across as a good person. Yet in the end, he got the punishment his wicked deeds deserved. They didn't even doubt him for a second, not until the very end, not until we actually betrayed him, Jesus. Uh, Verse 28. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So this lends credence to the idea that they didn't hear Jesus' response to John the disciple. Verse 30. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Now, Judah's soul is dark and it's getting darker. And he's a picture of many people who have the opportunity to repent but still continue to reject Jesus. He's just simply demonstrating man's sinful nature. But before we move on from Judas, I'm going to apply, or I'd like to apply the Judas mentality to us because we can be a bit like Judas. I'm not talking about being unsaved. Judas, his name means praise. Yeah, so it means praise. Now, it's a beautiful name, but it's a wasted name. How many people call their kids Judas these days, right? And his last, well, not his last name, Judas Iscariot, but um, it most likely means he was from the town of Kerioth. So Judas of Kerioth. And he's the only one of the disciples from the southern region of Israel. And it's said that back then that was a more educated, wealthy region of the country. So Judas was probably well-educated, which means that he was the best one to look after the books, so to speak. Now, why did Judas betray Jesus? Well, I mentioned it a bit before, but probably because that he was disappointed that Jesus wasn't becoming the political king. All right? And it says in Matthew twenty six fourteen to 16, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me? What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he saw opportunity to betray him. So basically, here's Judas, and he's disappointed in Jesus. He wants Jesus to be the political king so he can be the treasurer and he can get rich. Remember, he's a thief. He's described as a thief. Now, how does that relate to us? Well, we can be the same. We can have a tendency, and I see this tendency in people today, to sell out when they get disappointed in Jesus. For example, I thought Jesus would bless my business if I became a Christian, they say. But what happened? I went bankrupt. Now, if we're not careful, a Judas mentality will creep in and will sell out. Here's another real example. Not using any names. There was a woman who was following the Lord and obeying and submitting to him. She really wanted to get married, so she waited and waited for about eight years serving the Lord. Then she couldn't wait any longer for God to send her a Christian man, so she compromised and dated and finally married a non-Christian man. And then she was miserable. So what went wrong? Well, she sold out. What was her price? A relationship. She didn't get what she wanted, so she sold out. Her price was a relationship. She didn't lose her salvation, but her life became unfruitful, and she became miserable. And for many Christians, they have a price. They'll say, I'll follow Jesus if... And it could be fame or money or a job opportunity or a forbidden romance. A lot of teenagers struggle with this. All my friends are dating non-Christians. Why can't I? 
And when they do, they'll be pulled down. I was almost sold out, or I had I didn't almost, I wasn't really that tempted um, with pennant tennis. I that was on Sunday, so I could have sold out going to church and, and followed my tennis career. Not that I would have amounted to much, but you know, um, you know, I could have done that, but I said no. So that's why I'm not a famous tennis player now. No, just kidding, just kidding. All right, but I've got another example. A few weeks ago, I was going to play a Christian song. It's a lovely song by a Christian artist, a female artist, and. Well, she's well known, well, was well known for powerful songs that focused on our relationship with God and exhorting us to give our best to and for God. Well, she quit her Christian label and went to another label, like another marketing company, to go onto worldly music. And I was, I was shocked because I thought, oh, this is an artist that, you know, her, the lyrics in her songs are fantastic. But she sold out. She wasn't selling enough records. So, that was her price. And for me, it was just so disappointing that she didn't continue in her God-given opportunity to bless Christians with such a bold and powerful and pure message. But instead, she sold out for fame and fortune. And just a bit of reading up on, on that, um, her marriage has also fallen apart. So as she's been seeking what she wants, her life has fallen apart. So this woman who said, you need to follow Jesus and, and give him your best, well, she didn't put into practice her own words. So now the very last section, we get through this pretty quick. It's verse 31 to 38. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. So, verse 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him immediately. Now this is a really hard question. There's a particular word in here that's really heavily emphasized. Can you pick it up? <laughs> I could be glorified, yes. Oh, well done, you're all so clever. All right. So five references to glory in two verses. So how does Jesus see the cross? As glory, yeah. Jesus sees death as glory. And so as we die to self, we should see that as glory, giving up our own ways, giving up our own desires. And when Jesus asks us to take up our cross, we have to get it into our head. He's not trying to humiliate us, but rather glorify us. Okay, He's not trying to rip us off and take things from us. He's trying to glorify us. He's trying to um, give us honor. The path to glory and honor is always through the cross, the process of dying to self. Verse 33, little children. I love the way Jesus describes the disciples here, little children. It shows their maturity in their faith at this time, I believe. Little children, because um, what does John use in First John? Little children, young men, fathers. All right, Little children, but it's also a term of endearment too. I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. And this would have been like an earthquake to the disciples. They had left everything behind to follow Jesus, expecting to be high-ranking officials in his government most likely, when they thought he would become king. They followed him for three years, enduring a lot of um, suffering, and now he says, I'm leaving you and you can't come. Where I'm going, you can't come. Bye-bye. 
Now, it's not as bad as it seems because, you know, chapter 13 is followed by chapter 14. Funny that. And chapter 14, Jesus explains what this verse means. Okay, so we'll get into that next week. But now he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. So the all is the world and other Christians. So the world looks in and sees how we treat each other. Unfortunately, it's not always that good, is it? The way Christians treat each other. So it's a cause for blasphemy from the world. Now, this new commandment is not new as in um, it's a, a, a new type of commandment. It's like a refresher. It's like an improvement. Back in Leviticus, it says we are to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. But notice it says to love our neighbor as ourselves. So basically what we'd like to have happen to ourselves, we do to somebody else. And that's a nice way to live. But Jesus ups the ante. Jesus makes this a whole lot harder. And basically, he says it's a new commandment because it's so much harder. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Not love one another as you would like to be loved, but love one another as I have loved you. And how does Jesus love them? How does Jesus love us? Well, that's what's new. For example, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So the newness of the new commandment is that we are to love in a way that costs us our lives. Not just loving generally, not just doing to people what would be good for us or what I'd like to do, so I'll do it for you. But loving sacrificially to the place of death, to the point of death. In the Bible, there's never true reconciliation apart from someone or something dying. In the Old Testament, it was impossible to be reconciled without the sacrifice of an animal. In the New Testament, that picture is fulfilled in Christ dying on the cross. And for us, there's never going to be true reconciliation if we have a, a problem between us or we're angry with someone. We need to be able to say, I'm not going to grind my axe any longer. I'm not going to press my point any further. I'm not going to prove I'm right anymore. I'm just going to die. <laughs> and the question is, will you? But I'm innocent, you say. Well, so was Jesus. But I'm right. Well, wasn't he? <laughs> the commandment he gave us is to die, to our pride, our complaints, our position, our proof. Now, what if we die, you might ask? Does laying down my life and giving up my rights guarantee reconciliation? Well, unfortunately, no. Because many people still spat at and mocked Jesus as he was dying on the cross for them, for their sins. But if we are to love as Jesus loved, like him, we'll pray, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. That's the attitude we need to have. So we lay down our lives. David in the Old Testament, he says, when my enemies were sick, I would pray for them. I would wear sackcloth and, and ashes and, and humble myself for them. And in response, what do they do? They just, they hounded him. They tried to pull him down, they teased him, mocked him, ridiculed him. So, you know, David's attitude towards his enemies was, you know, I'll pray for them. And that's what we should be doing too. So by this kind of love shall all men know you are my disciples, said Jesus, when you love like I do, when you love to the point of death. Now, I'm going to emphasize with another quote from Chuck Smith. He says about this new commandment, The new commandment is to love each other as he loved us. This is a love that was impossible before Jesus came. But he set a whole new standard of love and gave this new commandment. My own self-love is no longer the basis. It had been the highest form of love we could know, but the selfless form of love Jesus brought love to a new level. So verse 36 Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. And that's going back to verse 33. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Peter's saying, you can count on me. 
I'll die for you if necessary. Verse 38, Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. So what's Peter saying this, or why is he saying this? What's it based on? It's based on his emotion and his self-reliance. And emotions, our feelings can lie. Afterwards, we're going to see a different Peter because his walk, his Christian walk, is no longer built on emotion and self-reliance or self-confidence, but on the work of Jesus and on the cross and on the powering of the Holy Spirit. And it says, Till you have denied me three times. And a quote from Guzik, Poor Peter, he would have died for Jesus, but he could not stand being laughed at for Jesus' sake. To him, a servant's girl tongue was sharper than an executioner's sword. <laughs> so he was more afraid. I read that again. Poor Peter, he would have died for Jesus, but he could not stand being laughed at for Jesus' sake. To him, a servant girl's tongue was sharper than an executioner's sword. He was more afraid of this girl's tongue and what she would say in ridicule if he admitted that he was a follower of Jesus. So we can't be too hard on Peter because there's many times when I myself have disobeyed the Spirit's leading because of a fear of rejection or humiliation. Or I've been depending on my own strength and not on the power of the Holy Spirit. But the comfort for here us is that um, when we do fail, Jesus restores us back to himself. Father, I thank you for all the, the rich lessons we can learn from this passage and we're going to learn from this continuing upper room discourse in the next few chapters. I just pray that you help us to grow, to be more and more in your image, to be like the Apostle John and to a lean on your breast, to abide in you, spending that personal time with you, that quiet time with you each morning, getting into your word, spending time in prayer, and spending time just listening as well, just being quiet. And I just pray that we will hear from you, Lord, and we will have pure hearts so that we can enjoy that fellowship with you and that we can abide in the vine and produce much fruit. So I just thank you for the example of love that you've given us in this chapter of washing people's feet and help us to do the same thing with our wives and husbands and with our nieces and nephews and with our sons and daughters and Lord, whoever it might be, our workmates, teach us, show us, make us humble, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.